Absolutely not. Um, it's all rather predictable going off the script. Um, say Murdoch, for instance, has for decades been playing higher stakes political games, furthering his own uh, pretty considerable interests. And likewise, Facebook has had a um, much shorter but extraordinarily uh, influential career of making uh, very you know, catastrophic decisions, um, like weighing in on things and changing its path very quickly and offering these loose little apologies and whatnot. So the fact that they um, have you know, banned all news sites with news being considered in the very, very broad possible terms um, is not not surprising. Um, it, I guess it came, uh, if you were to follow the mainstream media line, as a bit of a shock because it seemed that they were sort of nodding along and agreeing and Google acquiesced to aspects of it behind closed doors and we don't know the full details of that. But um, Facebook, I guess, concluded that they could dig their heels in a little bit more and um, they did. And yeah, it came down, I guess they're using Australia as a bit of a test case to try to take a very hard line approach because Australia is a sort of smallish country, valuable market, but not like big players in the EU or the US or other areas, other places that might consider similar kinds of legislation. Mm. Organizations such as, you know, Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance, and I guess many sort of more liberal commentators have used this example as, you know, the dire need for the regulation of these tech giants. Is that your feeling as well? Is this just a good example of, you know, the fact that these organizations, while, you know, private organizations, and while they can ostensibly, you know, allow people to post whatever they want and, and come up with their own rules, does, does it sort of point to the, the, the sheer lack of regulation of tech giants that, that this can happen and, and have a huge influence on our lives that, you know, are increasingly very much mediated by these platforms?
Certainly. And I mean, yourself and others have referred to these tech giants as a sort of the new industrialists, you know, akin to, I guess, the, the, the oil barons of, of the past. And, you know, th- there seems to really be a fundamental shift that's occurring in terms of our global econo- e- economy and, a, and our sort of global, I guess, the global capitalist system in a sense, particularly around uh, the purpose and value of data. Can I can I guess you can you explain a bit to our to our listeners how you see this shift taking place and do you think there is really a, a sort of a, a global economic shift around these companies and particularly in relation to the importance of data as a commodity? Yes, certainly. I think these the big companies like your Facebooks and Googles and whatnot, and also the lesser known ones like your Foxconns and Intels and whatnot, uh, they represent the, the latest development in what I believe is a truly fundamental shift in the way that the world works, which has its origins in the Second World War and the development of um, computing machines and cybernetics and, of course, atomic weapons, because all of those three things were developed at the same time. And all of them uh, saw the intellectually trained workers, like engineers and scientists and whatnot, working for the military-industrial complex to develop techniques and technologies of control, where they would work for the various militaries and, and companies bound up in those questions to figure out how to control information, how to extract and control and... Um, use that as a way to uh, gain uh, mastery over the world in a very real way. And that resulted in splitting into atomic bombs, the creation of the first computers, and so on. And so it has its origins then. And and it's gone something like an exponential curve since then. It sort of increased comparatively slowly at first, and then sort of really started taking off in the 70s. And then by the time you get to the... um, say, the global financial crisis in 2008, which was also at about the same time that, say, smartphones were being generalized and the big tech companies were all booming. We reached the latest manifestation uh, where it's become very in-your-face. But actually, if you look at the, the core of how this project has gone about, it actually has its sort of deeper roots. But I do genuinely think that it's a uh, world historic development in the like 500-year history of capitalism since the Second World War period. Uh, onwards that we're seeing you know, the, the work of the techno sciences and the actual um, scientific project being put to the service of, the, of a hugely concentrated market uh, in order to use technologies to gain greater control over, over people and um, the organization of the world. And we've certainly seen that during the COVID-19 pandemic that, you know, while uh, I guess sort of a lot of uh, other industries or, or capitalist industries have certainly suffered uh, the tech giants and the sort of the, the platform capitalism as a whole has really boomed during this period with uh, people such as Bezos and, and others really profiting off uh, the, you know, the lockdowns and the, the, the circumstances around the pandemic. It, it, do you think that's, I mean, you know, obviously it's something that's being exploited by these companies, but what what is your what are your feelings around how the pandemic has been has been exploited, and what does that say about the the new economy and, and economies that we're sort of finding ourselves in at the moment? Over the last 
year of the pandemic, we've witnessed what I imagine historians will one day clarify to be the largest transfer of wealth in human history, being a massive concentration of wealth at the top. We had incredible destruction of jobs all around the planet. Uh, and I think yeah, there's about the International Labour Organization estimated at the beginning of the pandemic that there was about 2 billion people had been thrust into conditions of serious precariousness struggling just on a day-to-day basis to get by, whereas within the first couple of months of the pandemic, the um, big billionaires that are at the, the apex of the tech titans, they saw their personal wealth grow by about a trillion dollars. It's since gone up to the better part of two trillion. Uh, it's, yeah, this is a, another world historic transformation, the, the level of inequality that is being reached. And it has all of these... Uh, strange contradictions in a way. I mean, a lot of it, you can see aspects of it manifesting in, say, the 5G conspiracies, which put a large focus on Bill Gates, who, of course, was the richest man on the planet for many, many years, even though he gave up being uh, CEO of Microsoft back in the early 2000s. But since then, uh, his base, and since the global financial crisis, he's actually tripled his um, total, total wealth, even though he hasn't really had a job. And the, the 5G conspiracy and other sort of conspiracy theories like that seem to have a, an understanding of this inequality and they sort of personify it in characters like Gates in mm. particular, which is inaccurate because it's not just Gates. There's about 2,000 billionaires around the planet who have a combined wealth of around $10 trillion. But the sort of the focus on that um, is, yeah, it's an interesting one and it's sort of felt by a lot of people and I think one of the concerns that is largely unarticulated by a lot of people but, but is felt is that the current mode of uh, capitalism that we're going into or have been increasingly going into over the last decades renders a significant amount of the world population surplus, as in not necessary for the, its own reproduction. This is kind of false. They're not surplus. We still need food. We still need you know, homes to be cleaned and all the Silicon Valley needs people for these sorts of menial tasks and producing their um, fancy toys and so on and so forth. But in a very real way, a lot of the world is becoming some kind of surplus population and this is terrifying and uh, will have very powerful implications in the future that are quite unpredictable that could go to um, kind of various fascist ends, as we've seen, such as, say, the 5G conspiracy being bound up with various other hardcore right uh, extremist conspiracies, particularly in the US, but also very much in Australia. But it could also have other potentialities. Um, Yeah, this remains to be seen, but it's definitely the question of inequality, I think, is up there with the question of technology and the environment more broadly as the biggest issues that we're going to be banging our heads against for the entire 21st century, certainly the rest of our lives. It's very much the unfortunate reality that social movements are, are very embedded within within platform capitalism or surveillance capitalism these days. Uh, for us, uh, you know, indie media, where, where our sort of origins are with this, with our radio program, was a part of the, the you know, the very, I guess, the ultra-globalization or anti-globalization movement in the 1990s, where there was a, a point where, 
the internet was seen as a force for democratization or for radical change, even uh, with the open source movements and, and creative commons and so forth. Like, obviously, that is not the, the current situation. And, you know, with, with some notable examples, there aren't really many um, alternatives online. What, what are your thoughts in regard to the idea of social movements or, or anti-capitalist movements and their engagement with platform capitalism or potential alternatives, online alternatives. Do you think there, there is a space for these tools to be used by those of us that are attempting to, to struggle for environmental, social or economic justice or more broadly for uh, those in, uh, struggling against uh, global capitalism? I guess they have to be used. Um, it's an un- unfortunate thing because the way that the, the tools are constructed is not for the purposes of furthering social movement or social social justice. Is it? Uh, but they are. Well, there's also a degree of amb- ambiguity in it, and uh, there's been a number of of um, contradictory moments in it. Like you can look at say the explosions of Black Lives Matters in the U.S. and around the world as a social movement that started. Uh, well, as a hashtag, I mean, it has a longer, deeper history of black resistance going back centuries, but that particular moment of it was definitely an online formation and has definitely used that and it's been quite a, um, quite a powerful, powerful social movement. Um, and yeah, there's, there's elements of it, but I think one of the problems, um, with a lot of the sort of the more utopian leftist thinking that was very popular, uh, across the 90s in particular, as you suggested, uh, was a, uh, not enough of a problematization of the actual computers themselves. That was kind of left out of it. I mean, it's true that computers, computer networks can offer uh, new possibilities of democratic intercourse and discussions between people across the planet and so on and so forth. All of that is, <clears throat> is quite possible, but it, it also occurs at the most abstract level as in it's just some text or some recordings or what have you that are funneled through these incredibly complicated machines that we don't really understand very well at all. And that took the other side of the world. So it's fundamentally disembodied and it fundamentally displaces people. And this sort of displacement and the idea that the place doesn't matter because you have an internet connection or the bodies don't matter is another key, key vulnerability of it. And yeah, a number of uh, movements have done pretty well at uh, using some of the different parts of platforms and whatnot for their own purposes. But I think that there's, there's structural limits in it. I guess uh, they have to be engaged with to an extent to try to um, use whatever tools we can. But to assume that it's going to come solely through there is, is a bit fraught. I mean, I can say... I'm, I'm an editor at Arena, which is an organization with its roots about the better part of 60 years ago, but it set up its website, which is still in operation, in the late 90s, so at a similar time to uh, indie media and various other um, movements uh, around that time. And, yeah, I guess since then, organizations like indie media, like Arena and whatnot, have been trying to engage with this space, always a bit on the back foot, sometimes, you know, with with great successes and getting places out there often just struggling to get by. I suppose a key thing for uh, 
people interested in taking up these struggles would be to try to support organisations like Indie Media and Arena, organisations unlike News Corp and Facebook who are actually um, trying to produce good critical analysis and that could be in the service of some kind of democracy considered more deeply than the facades that we have bandied about by the liberal media, as in like the ability for people to properly uh, think through and organise their own, uh, have a say in how they think the world should be organised, like that sort of deeper and more inspiring aspect of democracy, which was the thing that motivated a lot of the more utopian movements uh, in the left and their engagements, but I guess we just need to combine it with a strong critique of technology that can engage with it, but also see beyond it and not abandon questions of place and bodies, because to forget those parts of the struggle uh, just leaves great vulnerability. Finally, I just wanted to pick up on this question of, of disembodiment. And as you're saying, I think it's a very important question that a lot of, uh, you know, not just liberal commentators, but even uh, many academics that are discussing uh, surveillance capitalism or platform capitalism, it's often, unfortunately, one aspect that doesn't get touched on enough, and that is the, the, the question of the physicality of online media and new digital media and, and platform capitalism. It is, as you say, a very much an issue of, of disembodiment and taking us out of out of our own physical bodies and our own physical spaces. But there's also this question that it's a, a commodification of our own sociality and a commodification of our social relationships. And perhaps in some ways this is, for myself personally, one of the most terrifying aspects of platform or surveillance capitalism is that it's fundamentally changing and shaping uh, all of our human and also our you know, other relationships to the, to the natural world and, and so forth. Is this something that concerns you and do you think there is any antidote at all outside of just simply turning off our screens? Uh, there's increasingly good arguments for turning off the screens and um, I would definitely recommend a good dose of that. Having said that, I also spend a significant amount of my time looking at screens. Uh, so I can acknowledge a slight irony there. But um, I guess that goes to the the, the line of critique that I was trying to sketch out before in saying that I think a lot of these, the, the mutations we have in global capitalism going back to the, the Second World War and the creation of computing machines and cybernetics, it, um, it, it takes the intellectual practices, like the, the, the way that intellectuals, like engineers and whatnot, but also uh, writers and people like that, and it takes that to be the dominant one. And if you look at internet, the way that intellectuals have related to one another over the centuries, like if you go back to, say, the time of Gutenberg and characters like that at the beginning of capitalist modernity, it was, they were organised through disembodied means. They were writing letters to each other. They often didn't see the person or ever meet the person they were talking to. They were living in the presence of these abstracted others. But now, that, that mode, which was always held only by a small proportion of the population. Most people uh, at that point were peasants of various descriptions and their lives were not simpler. They were like very rich and complicated in many ways, but they were more grounded in a particular place and embodied relationships with those around them uh, in commu- tight-knit communities that were intergenerational and so on and so forth. 
very different means of, of understanding the world in a very different sense of place and being. But what we've seen is that the, the modes of engagement of the intellectual have been generalized greatly to uh, all the ex- great extremes that we have at the moment where um, yeah, the, how addictive and displacing and disembodying the various uh, devices we have at the moment are. I mean, I'm talking about a while ago now, but I have dim memories of going on public transport in Melbourne back when, when that was a thing in the pre-pandemic era. And, of course, almost every person is plugged into their little device looking at their fingers like doing these like little infinite spirals on tiny screens, little privatised, algorithmic-governed worlds of endless surveillance and commodification. And it's, it's a pretty dystopic scene, really. Mm-hmm. The, but it's so common. It's so frightfully common. And it's just not really thought about. I mean, if you were to just make a very realist sort of uh, collection of, like, say, a, a film, right, today, if you were to, like, film people on the on a tram going through public transport, trying to have a conversation, but constantly getting distracted by the phone and whatnot. If you were to look at that and then just imagine it from even like 20 years ago, it would look like straight up dystopia. It would look like sci-fi dystopia and yet where we've become it somehow uh, in this very striking way. And there's all sorts of questions involved in that. Um, and as you suggested in the question, a big part of it is what it means to be human. What does it mean when our prime ways of socialising are funnelled through commodified uh, techno-scientific machines controlled by some of the biggest corporations that have ever existed? What, what, is, what does this do to what it means to be human, to have a body, to live in a place, to all of those things, uh, as well as the acute and pressing political and economic questions of who has the power to decide who has how are resources distributed across society? So I suppose uh, an important thing would be to critique both the the level of the political economy and those kinds of questions, which, to go back to the beginning of this interview, um, talking about regulation or uh, particular sorts of policy packages or alternatives and whatnot, that's part of it. They're all bound in there and they're very acute struggles. But we also need to get to a deeper level and consider what it means to be human how that is, how these radical transformations are really making a big difference. And that's something that uh, requires a lot of careful and critical discussions and also lived practical experiments in doing other ones, like purposefully minimizing time on screens, purposely emphasizing creating uh, cooperative alternatives in specific places, uh, experiments in um, different kinds of radical sociality. There's a lot of good examples of all of these things in, pre- in place at the moment, and they need to be uh, given full support and reflection in order to try to carve out uh, an existence that's not um, some romantic return to an unabstracted past, because that's impossible, but rather where we can combine different levels of abstraction. So it would be possible to have, you know, a very grounded relationship in place with people in a face-to-face way, but then also have that complemented by uh, more abstracted and, say, electronic-mediated ways to go beyond that. And, yeah, some of these these tensions are 
and also their ecological underpinnings, which is something that I haven't gotten into, but is absolutely crucial, uh, really need to be thought through critically, in particularly by those on the left who often uh, take the sort of fully automated luxury communist kind of line of just assuming that you can change the boss at the top and the whole machine will suddenly work in everyone's favour. I'd be more sceptical. Timothy Strom, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for the uh, invitation. Awesome. Cool.